David is now brought into the house of Saul as both the sweet psalmist and Saul's military warrior. This is the 39th sermon in the series, Dynasty, Lordship, and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. A roll covenant reading coming from 1 Samuel 18, the first nine verses. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 through 9. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And it came to pass... When he had made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day, and would let him no more go home to his father's house. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant, because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him, and gave it to David, and his garments, even to his sword, and to his bow, and to his girdle. And David went out whithersoever Saul sent him, and behaved himself wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And it came to pass, as they came, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tablets, with joy, and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul hath slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very wroth and the saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed unto David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day and forward. The Apostle James writes this, first chapter of James, beginning in verse 13 through verse 15. By the same Spirit, the Apostle writes, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Thus far is the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word. The grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now that David and Jonathan have been joined together in a royal covenant before God, where, if you remember, there was a transference of royal power from Jonathan to David. And David is now brought into the house of Saul to serve him as his royal musician and the captain of his royal army. Now by this time the scripture implies that David had been gaining popularity ever since his defeat of Goliath and as he goes out against the Philistine and as he went out against the Philistines in time past. And of course his popularity was growing more and more. His leadership Courage and bravery were not only conspicuous, but his fighting skill seemed to be unsurpassed. And this is one of the reasons why Saul set David as commander over his army. The other reason why I think Saul set David over his army and within his household, I believe that there was a more pressing reason, a more sinister reason, In addition to using David to fight his battle, Saul wanted to keep an eye on David, just in case his popularity went too far. 
This was because Saul was a narcissist and he was being narcissistically suspicious over David. We read of David's promotion in the middle of the portion of verse 5. And notice, and Saul set him over the men of war. Now from this verse, from verse 5, we might infer that David might have had some notion as to the character of Saul. In fact, many would have a notion as to the unreliability, the unstable mind of Saul. David was giving Saul therapy through his singing of the psalm, so he might have had some notion as to the character and the instability of Saul. Otherwise, why would the scripture state that David had to then behave himself in a cunning fashion? He behaved himself wisely. Why would David be so concerned about his cunning behavior before Saul if it wasn't because he knew something about Saul? He was a very careful observer of personality. So why would David be concerned about his cunning behavior before Saul? Well, it could be the result of a number of things. Number one, Samuel's declaration as to what Saul would do as king. Remember in chapter 8, Samuel went before all of Israel and declared, if you choose this kind of a king, this is the kind of king you're going to get. So Samuel's declaration as to what Saul would do as king certainly had to reach David's ears. Samuel's prophecy was not given behind closed doors, but so that all of Israel could hear and know what manner of king they were asking for and what would come as a result, as a consequence of having that pagan model of a king. Secondly, Samuel could have warned David directly. When David was ordained by Samuel, maybe Samuel was warning him about what was going on with Saul. Thirdly, Jonathan might have even given David some insight as to the pride and the wickedness of his father. Remember, his father even wanted to kill him because of some law that was not even a righteous law. So maybe even Jonathan was was speaking with David, especially because Jonathan had now transferred all of his royal power, all of his royal dignity over to David. So maybe he was warning David as well. Number four, David might have simply observed firsthand the prideful character of Saul and decided that the better part of wisdom was to remain careful in his sight as to not offend him. And that's a lesson for us all as to our behavior when faced with tyrants and tyranny. We must behave ourselves very cunning, very wise, in a very, very clandestine fashion not so much showing our intention or living in a way that telegraphs what we're really thinking. Nevertheless, despite his cunning, David operated, even though he wasn't trusting Saul, and I don't believe he was trusting Saul at this point, not with all the information that he was giving, David operated as an obedient son to Saul. Always watchful, however, over the sinful man, who coveted Israel's throne for himself and his tribe. Now, consider David, in spite of his suspicion, he still acted obediently as an obedient servant to the king. The scripture notes this in the first portion of verse 5. Notice 18.5 of 1 Samuel, And David went out whithersoever Saul went him. Saul said, go here. David went there. Saul said, go to the other place. David obeyed. And there's an important lesson to be learned even there. Even when we must serve a master that is wicked, we must do our best to obey, and here's the caveat, 
in all things lawful, and to show ourselves fervent in the Master's business, not to bring attention to ourselves unless we are commanded to do evil or what is forbidden by Scripture. So as long as Saul was telling him to do what was right, David would do it. David was not a slothful servant, even though he was serving Saul. The Apostle gives us this warning. Paul says this to the church at Rome. In Romans chapter 12, verses 9 and following, Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love. In honor, preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the saints hospitably as a man of God. Not slothful in business. David would not be slothful in the king's business as long as it was a righteous cause. Peter says this in 1 Peter 2.18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward, with the caveat, as long as they do not command something which is unlawful or something which violates the biblical conscience. So it seems possible that, at first, Saul, seeing David was now redeeming Israel from Goliath and the Philistines, Saul might have, at first, initially, been well pleased with David, until the reality set in. Until the reality of David's popularity began to overshadow Saul's. Note the final portion of verse 5. And he was accepted in the sight of all people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Everyone knew David. Everyone knew about what he did and how brave he was. They, they, they knew of him. Even the general population, those who even had a close relationship with him, such as the servants of Saul, they regarded David very highly because David was a man of integrity. This gives us further insight as to the character of the young warrior. To have the general's public consent is a very difficult task. In fact, to have all men speak well of you is sometimes dangerous. Now, the reason why the general population at this point in Israel's history regarded David so highly is due to the simple fact that he had liberated the people from the tyranny of the Philistines. David was a man of integrity, yes, but he was also a man of action. And so as a man of integrity and action, the people took to him, especially because his action is what liberated them from the servitude of the Philistine. Secondly, we see something more than just the regard of the general populace. The scripture says that even the servants in the house of Saul regarded David with high esteem. Everyone began to gather around David. And what this tells us about David is he was not a prideful man. It seems as if he regarded even the lowly servant of the house of Saul well. He gave them his full attention. He wasn't standoffish. He was not prideful. He didn't say, hey, wait a minute. I'm sorry, I killed the giant. I have nothing to do with you lowly servants. I am the captain of Saul's army. Perhaps there is even the possibility that these servants, seeing David as just one of them, a regular guy, saw the contrast between this godly man of faith, David, 
and the prideful, tormented, tyrant Saul. We see here also another character trait of David, a man who is highly successful, either in warfare or business or politics, can usually be very standoff. But David was not. It was not the case with David. David could have been so puffed up because of his knowledge, because of his action, because of the victory over Goliath, or the fact that now the the women were singing songs about his slaying of the 10,000. He could have wanted nothing to do with anyone but, but the higher echelon. Nothing to do with the common folk. And yet, the servants loved him because he was a regular guy. He showed none of these wicked traits nor did he exhibit any prideful behavior. He did not consider himself above the people. He did not think himself as holier than the common folk. He understood that whatever he had accomplished, and this is what made him the man of integrity, he understood that whatever he had accomplished was by the grace of God because the hand of the Lord was upon him. He could not take credit. He would not take credit. He dared not take credit for anything that he did unto himself. If he knew a thing, God was the one who taught him that thing. If he did a thing, it was God who did it through him. If he gained the victory, it was God that must get the glory. David knew that everything that he was and, and was able to accomplish came directly from the hand of God as a gift to him to be used not for his own glory, not for his own pride, or arrogance, but everything that God gave David was for the glory of God, for the advancement of the kingdom, not for his own, not for his profit. Here is a man that knew himself and had the fear of God always before his face, knowing that God was with him and all the glory had to be given to God. Not so with Saul. The Apostle explains to the prideful Corinthian church that whatever they were, whatever they did, whatever they accomplished, that was a gift not to be boasted of. If they could argue the scriptures successfully, if they could be the greatest apologetic in the world, it was not them. It was God in them. He explains it this way, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. And knowing the pride of man, the Apostle Paul is telling the Corinthians Watch out, lest you be puffed up. Now notice what he says. For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what has thou, what do you have, that you did not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, if it's a gift, why do you glory as if thou hast not received it as a gift? In other words, whatever we know, if we know theology, If we know this, we know that. If we have advanced this cause for Christ, or that cause for Christ, or built this, or built that, it is not of us. It's a gift of God. And David understood that. David understood that all that he was in his character, what he had in his skill, what he had in his possession or position, or could accomplish by his action, was a gift of God, unmerited by David, but given by the grace of God. And that's what made the man so humble. This knowledge humbled him. To the point where he consciously understood that God's hand was upon him and he could take, and he could take no credit. And it caused him to be kindly affectionate even to the lowly courtier servants of Saul's, of Saul's noble court. And this is what the proper use of theology does. This is what the proper use of knowledge does. It doesn't puff us up, or at least it shouldn't. 
Theology, our knowledge of it, is to humble us. Theology is not about knowing, but being. David was a true man of God because he applied to his life the knowledge of God. And knowing this, David continues his quest to liberate Israel from the tyranny of the Philistines. Now once again, he's not doing this for his own honor. He was compelled to serve God. He was compelled to serve Israel. He would do anything for Israel. He would do anything for God. And it was not for his own honor, but for the honor of God and the safety of his people. That should be our motive. Upon his return from the slaughter, he is met with praises from the people of Israel. And I'll tell you this, this might have made him uncomfortable, knowing David's character. For so many people to praise him that way, and David knowing, this isn't me, it's not me, it's God. We should be singing praises to God. And it came to pass as they came, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tablets, with joy and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul had slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now this owed to David, not only making David uncomfortable, but it must have stuck as a knife into the prideful heart of Saul. Consider immediately in the next verse the reaction of the tyrant king. And Saul was very wroth. How dare they not praise me with 10,000? And the saying displeased him. And then he said this, They have ascribed unto David 10,000 to me, they have ascribed but thousands. And then he says this, And what can he have more but the kingdom. That was the problem. There are several points to be made here. Number one, it is unfortunate, historically speaking, that these women are looking to a man, even David, valiant as he is, instead of God with their praises. Now, if we compare these kinds of songs of victory, and we compare this song to the song of Miriam and the people of Israel after the destruction of Pharaoh and the Egyptian army at the Red Sea, we see that Israel at that point praised God, not Moses, for the victory. Notice Exodus 15.1. Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he is become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him an habitation. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host hath he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the sea. You notice the difference. By looking to a man and not God, Israel still hadn't learned her lesson. They had looked to Saul for their deliverance and now they're looking to David. They're just shifting their allegiances from man to man to man to man. Who's next? Throughout the period of the judges, they went from one judge to another to another to another. They still hadn't learned their lesson. 
And this, of course, was not David's fault, but it did indeed show that Israel was still looking to a man to save them as they had looked to Saul to save them. And that is exactly what we do today with our politicians. Commentator Richard Phillips observes, he says this, The woman's song reveals more than political ineptitude. Israel's low spiritual state is revealed in the fact that no praise was given to God but only to men. It generally reveals a low spiritual state level when Christians take after the world in praising men instead of God. Yet this is the very tendency in evidence today in the marketing of celebrity ministers and their empires. And I, of course, add politicians, lawmakers, judges, teachers, lawyers, and the list goes on and on. He continues... We should, of course, give thanks for able men and faithful Christians, but glory should be reserved for God. That's what Israel missed. Now, of course, when we look at the situation, I always like to look at the situation from the looking glass the other way, to see the types and the figures and the representations and the symbology. So, of course, when we look at the situation from a spiritual vantage point, we see that when Israel looked to Saul as their deliverer, the situation represented man looking to Adam or mankind or a politician or a judge or whatever. Remember, Saul is a representation of Adam. On the other hand, the church is often referred to as women. And so these women, typifying the church, are rightly looking to David if they are looking to him as a representation of Christ who David typifies. Number two, these praises, of course, made Saul quite angry. They caused Saul's pride to be so agitated enlarged and aggravated to the point of lamenting that he had ever brought David into his house and elevating him as he did. And this caused Saul to be very angry, very wroth. The the word wroth is a very, very aggravated kind of statement. Very, very angry, very displeased, which had the effect on Saul to be suspicious then from then on going forward of everything that David did. Note his real concern. And what can he have more but the kingdom? That exposes Saul's covetousness. Because his plan was dynastic. He wanted a dynasty for his generations following and his tribe. This was a blatant threat to his personal regime. He would hold on to power as long as possible and he did not want to let it go. His first mistake, firstly, was that he thought that the kingdom was his and what could he have more about the kingdom? In other words, what he's saying is, what can he have more about my kingdom? This is mine. Mine. It's mine. I'm the governor. The state of Virginia is mine. I'm the president. The United States of America is mine. That was the soul. This is my kingdom. This is my personal regime. But it was not. It was God's. Virginia belongs to God. The United States belongs to God. By thinking that he was God, Saul claimed the kingdom for himself. He would rule for himself. He would dictate for himself. And like so many politicians, governors, and presidents, and congressmen, and senators today... They would rule for themselves. David would rule for God. And he made no bones about it. 
His second mistake was that he was selectively forgetful. Samuel had, in no uncertain terms, told Saul that the kingdom was no longer his. Maybe for a period, but no longer was it his. He had no rights to it. It was not to be his dynasty. It was to be taken from him and be given to another. And Samuel told Saul exactly that. Saul could not abide, however, by that. And so, despite the prophecy of Samuel and the word of the Lord, he wickedly covets the kingdom despite God's will. He wants to hold on to that kingdom by fraud. And that's what so many politicians want. Hold on to power by fraud. Not legitimately, but by fraud. And so Saul continues to act as a type of Adam and the unregenerate seed of Adam's generation who covets the kingdom so as to be as God. You see, in the beginning, in the garden, Adam was given the kingdom initially, but when he rebelled, it was taken from him in the same way that the kingdom was taken from Saul and given to David in the same way that the kingdom was taken from Adam and given to Christ. The first Adam, the last Adam. Adam takes dominion, he fails. Christ takes dominion, he's successful. So if you think about it, This is what the desire of the wicked is. The wicked desire that they own the kingdom. They desire the kingdom. They desire, they desire dominion, domination. They want to be in control of everything in the same way as Saul wants to control the kingdom of God here. They want to be in control because that makes them feel powerful. Wicked men desire to dictate what the kingdom should look like, how it is to be advanced, and what restrictions should be placed upon it. We see that happening today. Wicked men desire to dictate what the kingdom should look like. Today, the wicked say, well, the kingdom, in my mind, looks like socialism, Marxism, tyranny. And in order to control every aspect and every nuance, I must keep the people in fear, and I must dictate whatever my soul desires. I will advance it to my own desires. I will bring it about the only way I know how, by domination, in the same way that Saul would terrorize his people. So does the state terrorize its people. You see, Saul thought that the state, which he represented, would control the kingdom. But what he failed to understand, and what so many today fail to understand, was that the kingdom belonged to the Lord. It was given in stewardship to the ministers, and once their stewardship was violated, God would remove the kingdom from them. David would simply be a steward of the kingdom and an under-shepherd of the great shepherd himself, the Lord Christ. Now, historically, as we've seen, David symbolizes the Christ of God in that he is not only king, but as we're going to learn, he's going to function not only as king, finally, but as prophet, judge, and priest. Prophet, priest, judge, and king. Saul never was given those concessions. In fact, when Saul sought to act as a priest, remember he made the sacrifice. Samuel was wroth because he had not the ordination to make that sacrifice. And that's when he lost the kingdom. He was rebuked for his rebellion. But that was not all. When Saul prophesied, remember what the people said. Saul, among the prophets, it was like a fish out of water. He was prophesying, but it was so unnatural for a Benjamite, especially Saul, to prophesy. 
Furthermore, Saul's judgment also had to be called into question as far as Saul acting legitimately as judge, prophet, priest, and king. He couldn't act legitimately like that because he was not thinking biblically. And this is what Adam's race does. They desire to maintain their own secular kingdom power as prophet, priest, judge, and king over the true kingdom of God without a legitimate ordination from God. The fact of the matter is that the state has no jurisdiction over the church of God, which is the representation of the kingdom of God on earth. In fact, who does function as prophet, priest, judge, and king? But the true elect of God. Those who are truly God's people are called as prophets, priests, and kings, and judges. Because we're the only ones that know right from wrong. It seems like today, right from wrong is an anomaly, as fact as the knowledge of it goes. Evil is put for good, good for evil. We are the only ones that can discern the light from the darkness. Hearing the song of the people, and fearing that the kingdom might actually depart from him, as was prophesied, Saul enviously observes David in a murderous fashion. Notice the shift. Now David must die. Now Christ's representative must die. The state, Saul, wants to make sure that the witness of Christ, the witness of David, the witness of the church is stifled. And Saul eyed David from that day and forward. Put it plainly, Saul was now watching David like a hawk, apparently to find an occasion to kill him. The position that David finds himself in is synonymous with the position that the Lord Jesus found himself in during his battle with the Philistines. In the same way that Saul was seeking opportunity to kill David, so too were the Pharisees seeking opportunity to kill the Christ. And the state, even now, seeking opportunity to silence the church. Note the similarities. Once David is tagged as the kingdom's heir, Saul wants him killed. Once Christ is identified as the kingdom's heir, his life is targeted by the scribes and the Pharisees. And this is the intention of the parable of Luke 20, which is also found in Matthew and Mark. Notice Luke 20, verse 14. But when the husbandmen saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come and let us kill him that the inheritance may be ours. Saul was worried about his inheritance. David was getting in the way. The tyrant is worried about their power base. The church is getting in the way. Saul wanted the kingdom as an inheritance in the same way that the wicked Jews wanted the kingdom for theirs. But in order to get it, The rightful heir of the throne had to be done away with. So notice what Jesus tells him in John 7 and Luke 22. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Murder becomes the default position of the tyrant. After his conversion... The Apostle Paul, still at this point known as Saul, preached the kingdom of God to the displeasure of the chief priests of the Jews. And as a result of their intense hatred of the witness of Christ 
They too sought to kill him in the same way as King Saul sought to kill David and the Pharisees sought to kill the Christ, the true heir of the kingdom. Notice Acts chapter 9, verse 21 and following. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which called on this name in Jerusalem and came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? But Saul increased more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. And after that many days were fulfilled, the default kicks in, the Jews take counsel to kill him. Speak truth in a world of darkness. Speak liberty of conscience in the world of tyranny and the default response is murder. Silencing. And sometimes the only way is murder. So what is at work here with the desire to kill the righteous heirs of the kingdom? What is at work here? Well, to understand this, we have to return back to the Garden of Eden because everything begins there. Adam, before the fall, was to be the rightful heir of the kingdom of God, symbolized by Eden. And upon his rebellion, he forfeits his inheritance. And yet, for his lust as to what he lost, that lust was not diminished. In fact, after Adam lost Eden, his lust for dominion was intensified, but wickedly, unwilling to recognize Remember, he represents all of wicked mankind as well as the elect. Unwilling to recognize his disposition and loss of the kingdom, he sets out to destroy the rightful heirs in the same way as Saul sought to kill David, the rightful heir of the kingdom. What the church of Jesus Christ must come to terms with is this. Adam's race of the unregenerate reprobate desires one thing. They want to rule the world. World domination. Domination is the goal. Ruling the world to them is the essence of kingdom power. It is not the kingdom of God, however, that they desire to establish. It is the kingdom of man seeking to be as God so that they may establish their own kingdom, their own fiefdom, and dominate others. But in order to rule and gain dominion over the kingdom of man, they must get the church out of the way. Remember what happened. This is a historical fact, and this is a present fact in our day. And so, there are two opposing kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness... Adam's rebellious race, and the kingdom of light, Christ's elect, the eternal church of the living God. So the lesson is painfully simple. Adam's race will always be keeping a suspicious eye upon the children of God. We are in the crosshairs because they're keeping an eye on us to find any and every opportunity to kill us either by slander or by actual elimination. And this is why we can never give the opposition any reason to besmirch the honor of Christ by acting sinfully or foolishly because the world is watching. Beloved, the world is watching. Christians are watching other Christians to see what they're going to do. The wicked are watching the church to see if they're going to crumble, to see if they're going to stand in faith. They're watching even as Israel was watching when Goliath was out there cursing God until the David arose. So know this. Your sin will find you out. It takes years to build a godly character. The world is watching. It only takes a nanosecond to destroy it. 
And once you lose your integrity, once that happens, it's very hard to get your integrity back. Even with forgiveness and repentance, it's very hard. That road is very hard and very long. David learned that the hard way. Because when he sinned, when he finally thought himself wiser than God, when he was not conducting himself with integrity, cunningly, he spied a woman and he fell into disgrace. And it took him a long time to recover. But from that time, going forward, from the time of his transgression, his house was in shambles. It takes only one minute to ruin your integrity. It may take a lifetime to get it back. And so, Saul eyed David from that day and forward looking for something. Looking for something. The prideful heart of Saul leads him to destruction. And this is what the prideful heart does. It destroys. Saul was on the path of destruction. Perhaps reminiscing over this historical story that David might have shared with Solomon, his son. Solomon says this in Proverbs 16.11. He says, Prieth goeth before destruction. Maybe his father was telling him all about what Saul was about. Yeah, this is what Saul was doing. His pride was destroying him. And a haughty spirit before a fall. One other very important point must be made here. Whenever you speak your mind, either in the earshot of others or on social media, and I'll tell you right now, social media is a snare. Be careful what you write. Be careful what you like. Be careful of your condemnation of things. So whenever you speak your mind, either in the earshot of others or on social media or in chat room, be cunning, be wise. Be cunning and wise because the wicked are keeping a careful eye upon you. And as a result of his sinful pride and Saul's murderous intention, he was about to fall into the depths of destruction and nothing, by this time, nothing. We see, we see him going further and further into the abyss of darkness. Nothing by this time could ever deliver him. And it came to pass on the morrow, verse 10, that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul and he prophesied in the midst of the house. And David played with his hand as at other times and there was a javelin in Saul's hand. As we have already determined, once a man is bent upon wickedness, his psyche is perverted to the point of murderous intentions. Every man is drawn away of his own lust and enticed And Saul had been drawn away of his own lust and enticed to the point where he even walked with a javelin in his hand. Such was the case with Saul. He was bent on murder. The scripture says that Saul was prophesying also in his house at the same time as he was planning on killing David. And, And this is just amazing to me that he's prophesying at the same time when he's ready to kill God's anointed. Such hypocrisy. The intent of the verse seems to say that Saul was praying which indicates that he was acting in a very holy manner while harboring wickedness in his heart. How many people act so holy, they're so holy, and yet in their heart, hatred, murder, slander. This was Saul. 
How many Christians maintain an open show of holiness, yet within the secret chambers of their heart, they contemplate vanity and wicked intentions. But not only was, was Saul determined to kill David in his heart, he prepared for that very act by arming himself with a spear in order to complete the dastardly deed. This was a planned act. While he's being religious, he's planning to kill. He was a man that was not to be believed. Don't always believe those who are so pious and so religious, those who have theological prowess. You don't know what's in the heart of man. Jesus knew what was in the heart of man. We need to be cunning. This is what sinners do. Like Saul, they first contemplate the act. They play it over and over in their mind. Then they prepare for the execution of the act. And finally, they accomplish the wicked act. And again, James says, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust hath conceived, after he has played it over in mind, over and over, prepared for the execution of it, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And that is how sin works. Those who sin don't ordinarily, just automatically, especially in the case of great sin, sin. It doesn't just happen. Whoops! Oh, sorry. There's usually a contemplation of the sin first, especially great sin. Then if the contemplation is not mortified in the battlefield of the mind by thinking upon the things of Christ and praying and begging God to keep His hand of restraint upon us, if the contemplation of that sin is not mortified in the battlefield of the mind, then the mind moves forward to the next step and they prepare to execute the sin. And what they do is they situate themselves so as to be easily available to act upon that sinful desire. And by that time, the intention of the individual to commit the sin is, is so intense that there is no turning back. The intention is so so committed that there's no turning back. Because the time to mortify that sin is long past. Because the time of mortification of sin is in the battlefield of the mind. And if sin is not mortified, the evil spirit of the old Adamic nature takes control. Commentator Phillips warns this, he says this, We should watch carefully against the appearance of an envying spirit within our own hearts. As sinners, we are prone to such thinking, which corrupts our capacity for joy and sets us needlessly against people who ought to be our friends. If we find ourselves thinking spitefully against others whose gifts surpass our own or resenting praise given to others' achievements, we should mortify this sinful attitude. We chiefly do this by taking the matter to God in prayer, leaving no room for such wickedness to settle in our hearts. What Saul should have done was say, David, the kingdom is going to be yours I will do everything in my power to advance the kingdom of God to place you on the throne. But because he was covetous, he refused. Matthew Henry adds this, he says, It is a sign that the Spirit of God is departed from men if they are peevish in their resentment of affronts, envious and suspicious of all about them, and ill-natured in their conduct. For the wisdom from above makes us quite otherwise." End quote. So how do we how do we combat 
these lustful, prideful notions before they take root and we fall headlong into the execution of our wickedness like Saul. Since all sin begins in the mind, that is where we fight our battles. And that is where we must win. We cannot just say, I will fight against my wicked desires in my mind and say, well, I might lose. No. We must win. We must win. Because Christ has given us the victory. Here's what the Apostle says. Finally, my brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. God gives us here the antidote for dealing with the lusts that creep up in our minds, and He says, think! Think before you act, and think on the things of God. Sometimes when I hear of what people do, even those within the Christian community, I exclaim, what on earth were you thinking? Because that's where it begins. What were you thinking? And the answer to this rhetorical question is, they were not thinking. They were not thinking on the things that Paul commanded. They were thinking according to their own lust desires. You see, the problem with Saul is that he could think only about what was satisfying his own lust and he was running headlong to satisfy it, into that lust. Sadly, once he got to that point, he would go to any length, even murder, to satisfy his lust, even to the point of murder. David did not learn his lesson either at this point. Because even he later on, sadly we must say, even he would resort to murder. And Saul cast a javelin, for he said, I will, notice, I will, a testimony of the mind. He willed it, he thought it, he willed it, and he willed it so that he might murder. I will smite David even to the wall with it. Happily, Saul was not to be successful, for David was too cunning to be a victim of the wicked king. So, again, by God's grace, David is preserved and was able to avoid Saul's murderous attempt twice. We will continue to examine the downward spiral of King Saul when we continue in the exposition of the first book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.